Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 43. Verses 9 through 14. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Burkett notes, The design and scope of our Savior in this parable is to reprove and condemn the Pharisee, and in them all other justiaries, who, having a high opinion of and trusting in their own righteousness, despised others as vile persons, whose religion is not accompanied with ostentation, and who pretend not to such extraordinary degrees of sanctity as themselves. The parable further shows that a humble, self-condemned sinner, who, though he has been wicked, is now sensible of it, and with shame and sorrow confesses it before God, is more acceptable than he that vaunts of his virtue and rests in the outward duties of religion. His pride and exaltation of himself shall abase him, while the other's humility shall exalt him. This is the general scope of the parable. The particular observations from it are these. 1. The Pharisee and the publican both pray. They both pray together in the place of prayer, the holy temple, and they both pray with and within themselves. Here the duty and action is the same. There may be a vast difference in the purpose and intention. Doth a humble saint pray? So may a haughty hypocrite. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. Observe, too, the Pharisee's prayer. He stood and prayed with himself, God, I thank thee, etc. Where note his gesture, he stood and prayed. Standing and kneeling are praying gestures, but sitting is a rude indecency, except in cases of necessity. In prayer, says pious Bishop Hall, I will either stand as a servant to my master, or kneel as a subject to my prince. Note farther, it is said, he prayed. But here is not one petition but thanksgiving. God, I thank thee, etc. Whence learn that thanksgiving is a part of prayer. Hannah's prayer, as it is called, 1 Samuel 2, is a canticle or song of praise. We then pray best when we praise God most. Again, see the Pharisee's pride in this his prayer. Proud beggar shows not his wounds, but his worth. Not his rags, but his robes. Not his misery, but his bravery. He brings God Almighty in a reckoning of his service. I fast twice a week. I give alms of all that I possess. And thanks God more that others were bad than that he himself was good. Had the Pharisee with a humble mind thanked God for his restraining grace, that though he was not so good as he should be, that he was not so vile and bad as some others, this had been no fault. But when he comes before God with a proud and scornful mind, inwardly pleased that others were so bad, and so much worse than himself, giving thanks rather for others' badness than for his own goodness. This is a wickedness incident to none but devilish dispositions. Learn hence that whatever shows of goodness a hypocrite might make, 
yet he is inwardly glad of and takes a secret delight in others' badness. God, I thank thee that I am not as this publican, which was a kind of triumph and proud insultation over the poor publican. He would seem to thank God that he was not so bad as the publican, when indeed he was glad that the publican was not so good as himself. Observe 3. That the publican's behavior, in a humble sight and sense of his own sinfulness and unworthiness, he stood afar off, probably in the court of the Gentiles, where all sorts of sinners might come, acknowledging thereby that he was unworthy to come near the holy majesty of God, not presuming to lift up his eyes to heaven, that place of perfect holiness and purity, but like a true self-condemned penitent, smote upon his breast, and in bitter remorse of soul said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Hence learn that a truly humble temper of mind well becomes us in our approaches and addresses to God, and is more acceptable to him than all pompous performances whatsoever. For observe lastly, the publican being thus condemned of himself departs justified by God. He went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. The Pharisee justified himself, but the publican was justified by God. Hence learn that a penitent sinner who is indeed poor in spirit is far more esteemed of God than he that makes long prayers, fasts often, tithes all his substance, and prides himself in all of this. Without humility, all is vainglory and hypocrisy. And the seeming most sanctified person that has it not is like a painted sepulcher, beautiful without, but full of rottenness within. Verses 15 through 17. And they brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them unto him, and said, Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, shall in no wise enter therein. Burkett notes, observe here, 1. A solemn action performed. Children, infants, suckling children, as the word signifies, are brought to Christ that he might bless them. The parents, looking upon Christ as a prophet, as a great and extraordinary prophet, persuade themselves that by his prayers and laying his hands on the children, they should be preserved from bodily disease and from Satan's power, and that he would confer upon them all needful blessings. Learn one that infants are capable of benefit by Jesus Christ. Two, that it is the best office that parents can perform unto their children to bring them unto Christ, that they may be made partakers of that benefit. Three, that if infants are capable of benefit by Christ, if capable of his blessing on earth and presence in heaven, if they be subjects of his kingdom of grace and heirs of his kingdom of glory, then may they be baptized. For they that are within the covenant, Acts 2.39, have a right to the privileges of the covenant, and to baptism, the seal of the covenant. And if Christ denies not infants the kingdom of heaven, which is the greater, what reason have his ministers to deny them the benefit of baptism, which is the less? Learn, for that Christ will have all his disciples and followers to resemble little children in such properties wherein they may be patterns to them, viz. in humility and innocence, in freedom from malice and revenge, dociability and teachableness, in cleaving to and depending upon their parents, and in contentedness with their condition. Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Verse 18. 
And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Burkett notes, We have here a considerable person, a ruler, coming to Christ with an important question in his mouth. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Where note 1, he believes the certainty of a future state. 2, he professes a desire of an eternal happiness in that state. 3, he declares his readiness and willingness to do some good thing in order to the obtaining of that happiness. Hence learn that the light of nature or natural religion teaches men that good works are necessary to salvation, or that some good things must be done by them who at death expect eternal life. It is not talking well and professing well, but living well that entitles us to heaven and eternal life. Verse 19. And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is, God. Burkett notes, Our Savior here reproves this person for calling him good, when he did not own him to be God, saying, There is none good, that is, essentially and originally good, absolutely and immutably good, but God only. Nor any derivatively good, but he that receives his goodness from God also. Verse 20. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. Burkett notes. Note here that the duties directed by our Savior are the duties of the second table, nothing being a better evidence of our unfeigned love to God than a sincere performance of our duty to our neighbor. Love to a man is a fruit and testimony of our love to God. Learn hence that such as are defective in the duties of the second table, charity and justice towards men, do make but a counterfeit show of religion, though they pretend to the highest degree of holiness and love towards God. Verse 21. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth up, Burkett notes, this assertion may be very true, according to the Pharisees' sense and interpretation of the law, which condemned only the gross outward act, not the inward lusts and motions of the heart. An external obedience to the letter of the law this man might have possibly performed. This made him think well of himself and conclude the goodness of his own condition. Learn hence how prone men are to think the best of themselves and have too high an opinion of their own goodness and righteousness before God. This is very natural, but dangerous and fatal. Verse 22. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Burkett notes, observe here, 1. Our Lord's admonition, Yet lackest thou one thing which is true self-denial in renouncing the sin of covetousness and the inordinate love of worldly wealth. We ought, in the midst of our abundance, to maintain a readiness of disposition to part with all for God's sake that is dear unto us in this world. Observe, too, our Lord's injunction, sell all that thou hast, and give to the poor. This was not a common but a special precept given particularly to this rich man for trial, like that given to Abraham, Genesis 22 and to convince him of his corrupt confidence in riches. Yet is the precept thus far of general use to all, to teach us so to condemn worldly possessions as to be willing to part with them all at God's pleasure and when they prejudice our salvation. Verse 23. 
And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Burkett notes, Here note the effect which our Savior's admonition had upon this person. He was very sorrowful. Learn thence that carnal men are exceeding sorrowful when they cannot win heaven in their own way. Two, that such as are wedded to the world will renounce Christ rather than the world when the world and Christ stand in competition. He went away sorrowful. St. Mark 10.22 For he was very rich. Verses 24 through 27 And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of heaven? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Burkett notes, Our holy Lord takes occasion from the rich man's departure from him to discourse concerning the danger of riches and the difficulties that attend rich men in their way to heaven. From whence we may collect and gather, one, that rich men do certainly meet with more difficulties in their way to heaven than other men. It is difficult to withdraw their affections from riches, to place their supreme love upon God in the midst of their riches, and to depend entirely upon God in a rich condition. For the rich man's wealth is his strong tower. Two, that yet the fault lies not in the riches, but in rich men, who by placing their trust and reposing their confidence in riches to render their salvation difficult, if not impossible. Three, our Savior's proverbial speech of a camel's going through the eye of a needle implies thus much, that it is not only a great difficulty, but an utter impossibility for such as abound in worldly wealth and place their confidence therein to be saved without an extraordinary grace and assistance from God. It is hard for God to make a rich man happy because he thinks himself happy without God. For, that as difficult and impossible as this may seem to men, yet nothing is impossible with God. He can change the heart of the rich by the rich and powerful influences of his Holy Spirit. That which is impossible with men is possible with God. Verse 28 Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. Burkett notes, It was well done and wisely done of Peter to leave all and follow Christ. It was the best bargain he ever made in all his life. But observe how he magnifies that little he has left for Christ and ushers it in with a note of admiration. Lo, we have left all and followed thee. Learn hence that though it be very little that we suffer for Christ and have forsaken upon his account, yet we are prone to magnify and admire it as if it were some great matter. Lord, says Peter, we have left all. What all, man, hast thou left? A few ragged nets and tattered fisher boats? A great all indeed, next to nothing at all, scarce worth mentioning, and yet how it is magnified. Behold, we have left all and followed thee. Verses 29 and 30. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that had left house or parent or brethren or wife or children, for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. Burkett notes, Observe here the lenity and kindness of our Lord's gracious answer. He tells his disciples that they who had left all and followed him should be no losers by him. That is, in this world they shall receive manifold. St. Mark chapter 10.30 says, 
a hundredfold. But how so? Not in kind, but in equivalency. Not a hundred brethren and sisters and possessions in kind, but he shall enjoy all that in God, which all creatures would be to him if they were multiplied a hundred times. O the sanctifying gifts and saving graces, the supporting comforts and ravishing consolations of the Holy Spirit are a sufficient compensation for anything, for all, yea, for more than all, that we can part with for the sake of Christ. Verses 31 through 34. Then he took unto him the twelve, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on, and they shall scourge him, and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. And they understood none of these things, and the saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. Burkett notes, We find our blessed Savior very frequently acquainting his disciples with his approaching sufferings, to prevent the offense that they might take at them when the providence of God brought them on. This design was to arm them with expectations of his suffering, and to quicken them to preparation for their own. Yet it is said here that the disciples understood none of these sayings. Why so? Were not the words easy enough to be understood? Yes, but they could not reconcile them with the notion of the Messiah, which they had drunk in. They concluded he should be a temporal prince, and subdued their temporal enemies, but could not conceive how he that should redeem Israel should die, and be thus barbarously used. We have great need to consider well what notions we have concerning the things of God before we entertain them, for false notions, once taken up, are not without great difficulty laid down. Verses 35 through 43. And it came to pass that as he was coming nigh unto Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging, and hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant, and they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passed by. And he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And they which went before rebuked him, saying that he should hold his peace. But he cried so much the more, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him. And when he was come near, he asked him, saying, What wilt that I shall do unto thee? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Receive thy sight, thy faith has saved thee. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise unto God. Burkett notes, This chapter concludes with the recital of a famous miracle wrought by our Savior upon a blind man whom St. Mark calls Bartimus, where we have observable, one, the blind man's faith in acknowledging Christ to be the Messiah, for so much the title of Son of David did import. Two, observe his fervency as well as his faith. He cried to Christ for the mercy of healing. Have mercy on me, thou Son of David. A true sense of want, either bodily or spiritual, will cause a soul to cry to Christ with earnestness and importunity. Observe three, the great compassion and condescension of Christ towards this blind man. He stood still, he called him, and enlightened his eyes. Observe four, before Christ would restore the blind man to sight, he must sensibly complain of the want of sight and cry unto him for it. 
Christ knows all his creatures' wants, but takes no notice of them till they make them known to him by prayer. Observe 5. How much Christ magnifies faith, what he attributes to it, and how he rewards the least exercise of it. Jesus said, Thy faith has saved thee. Christ himself was the efficient cause of the blind man's healing, but he exerted his divine power upon the exercise of the blind man's faith, and accordingly says, Thy faith has saved thee. Note 6. In what way and manner the blind man doth express his thankfulness to Christ for his recovered sight. He followed him, glorifying God. Mercy received from Christ is then well improved when it engages us to follow Christ. This should be the effect of all salvations wrought for us. He praises God best that serveth him most. A life of thankfulness consists in the thankfulness of life.